0: This podcast is brought to you by the GOSH Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back to GOSH Pods, our podcast from the GOSH Learning Academy, which highlights all the brilliant work that's happening across the GLA. This week, we have an episode from our series on clinical research skills for allied health professionals with Dr. Sarah Cook, will be speaking with expert guests on the subject of quantitative research and mixed methodologies. If you enjoy this week's episode, you may also be interested in the course Developing Clinical Research Skills Lessons Learned from AHP Staff in a Research Hospital on GOSH Den. If you want to find out more, you can head to www.gosh.nhs.uk and search the course catalogue for more information. We hope you enjoy this week's episode and I'll hand over to Sarah.
1: Welcome back to another episode in our bite-size research series. My name is Sarah Cook, and today we are focusing in on research methods. So... Broadly dividing these, um, we're going to be talking about qualitative and quantitative research methods. And so to try and illustrate this in a more real world example, we have two very special guests with us on the show today, Ian and Polly, who are both undertaking or have undertaken research here at GOSH um, and will have a lot of experience and knowledge to share with us. So welcome to the show, Ian and Polly.
2: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much.
1: Would you like to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your roles and also the type of research you used here at GOSH?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So my name is Ian Simcoe, and I'm a clinical academic radiographer at Great Ormond Street Hospital uh, in radiology. Uh, And I'm in the final few months of my PhD, which has been uh, funded by the National Institute of Health Research uh, and is developing micro CT for human fetal postmortem imaging. And I'm hoping to submit in the next few days.
1: Exciting. Fantastic. That sounds really great. And um, Polly, would you like to tell us a little bit about
3: yourself? Uh, yeah, my name's uh, Polly Livmore. I am um, a, bit, uh, a matron for blood cell and cancer at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. And that's part time with the clinical academic lead role um, for ORCID where we help anyone in the trust, uh, nurses and allied health professionals in particular, who want to undertake some research. So it might be writing up their master's dissemination or they want to do their own research study, or maybe they want to apply for some fellowship and some funding. Uh, And I completed my PhD at the end of the summer last year. Amazing,
1: congratulations. (laughs) Jumping right into the sort of questions that we want to cover today. Um, Ian, would you like to kick off by telling us um, what your research question
2: was? Yeah, sure. So um, my background's in radiography and imaging. Um, and although we've got some fantastic clinical tools um, that can diagnose reasons why people may have diseases, um, what we also use it for is post-mortem imaging. But unfortunately, a lot of the techniques that we have in our clinical clinical areas are too low resolution for very small early miscarriages for those less than 24 weeks. So we used a new technique called micro CT to be able to gain real high resolution images of those really small fetuses and that unfortunately died before 24 weeks gestation.
1: Obviously this is a very important research topic. What methodology did you choose to use for this and could you tell us why?
2: So I used primarily quantitative methods um, to sort of develop and optimize methodology to gain the maximum uh, high resolution images that we could um, and that was mainly because we wanted to look at sort of collecting and analyzing numerical data to find out how we could maximize that signal. Uh, and, and quantitative data really is, is a way of uh, trying to find patterns or averages or make predictions um, on data and therefore sort of test relationships and then use that to generalize it to a wider population so that we can, we can use it in a, a larger or, or wider area of study.
1: What issues did you find that you encountered during the research either with the methodology itself or with applying that
2: yeah i think i think as with any research nothing goes smoothly um and that's uh, that's not particular to quantitative but uh, for any research really so i think part of the difficulty was um coming from a clinical background into a research background and um, and learning those skills and i think lots of us have that that real clinical interest at first that drives us to try and find these research ideas and um, but we don't necessarily have the tools at the beginning to to be able to identify how we can improve stuff so I think part of it was developing those new skills and I was a very senior MRI radiographer and then coming into uh, an area of research where I'm I'm really junior and that uh, new skills was quite uh, challenging and certain it's certainly interesting but I think also really helpful to sometimes go back to the basics and go okay so I, I I don't know much here how can I improve and how can I use these skills to find out and answer my question and um, so that was really interesting in just being able to design experiments that were going to work uh, and then finding those problems where it didn't work quite so well but then trying to overcome those and and make it better Uh, And along the way, developing massive amounts of skills that I never thought I would ever, ever use things like coding or statistical knowledge or or um, how to sort of build databases, how to write journal papers, how to publish papers, how to write posters. All these things are are skills that you learn all along the way. Um, And I think if if I knew what I knew now at the beginning, it would almost be overwhelming. But it's been really interesting and really fulfilling to be able to, to learn these things and to add them to my clinical skills. Really.
1: I think that's a really
2: excellent summary of how a lot
1: of us feel before taking re- undertaking research, that, you know, we don't have the skills for that, you know, we're not we're not research-minded because we can't do statistics or we can't code or we can't use these specific um, packages. And, yeah, I completely appreciate the fact that a lot of people are quite senior when they start thinking about undertaking research, and it's so hard to go back to the beginning almost, um, Uh, and be that junior person, but it's very rewarding at the end. So I think that's a really um, interesting point you've raised. So you spoke a little bit about, um, you know, overcoming uh, these issues and moving forward. Was there anything specific um, that you did to overcome that? Was there um, training programs that you undertook or statistics that you learned about or things like that?
2: Um, I I went on lots of courses and I I was very fortunate to be funded by the National Institute of Health Research. And that was great because it gives you dedicated time to undertake your research but also to develop your skills so to go on training courses and the funding is there to go on these things but I think the the most helpful advice that I ever got was by somebody just saying ask for help just basically go and to go and find someone who you think is either an expert in the field or is somebody in your department who has an interest in research and just ask if you can either get some help or, or ask if you can get involved and I think that's I, I was always very nervous about speaking to these people who I thought were the, uh, the the leaders in their areas and of course they are but they're always really willing to help you and I think if you just go and say to them look I've, I've got a problem I think this is how I solve it but I'm not sure would you would you give me an idea then they're, mo- they're usually more than willing to to give you some advice and help because I think we've all been there in that situation and I think we all like to think that when it's our turn to give that advice that you'd be very very easy to approach and things. So I think emails, phone calls, Twitter is a fantastic thing to drop a, a message, a DM message to somebody who you think is way above your knowledge, expertise, but just to ask them for help. And that and that was really helpful. And then also I think I I really helped from talking to people about my research because I think the more you talk about it, the more you get advice, and the more you get more comfortable about talking about these ideas is really helpful. So so whether it's um friends or colleagues it's it's always helpful to be able to talk about it because that the key to all research i think is being able to get to get your research across in very simple terms so that everyone can understand it and the more you do that the more you realize that at first you're talking in a lot of jargon and by the time you've you've finished hopefully you're you're talking in much more plain english and much more understandable language for people so i think just to speak to people is that is the greatest advice i ever got really
1: Fantastic. Thank you. What did you find the most difficult part of your research overall? Was there a particular time or area?
2: I think lots of uh, people who I spoke to have done their PhD or are doing their PhD. At some point, it doesn't go right. It doesn't work for whatever reason, whether the, the, the participants that you hope to recruit, they just don't respond to your your um, call for, for help or your experiments fail or machines break. Anything like that, really. I think that was the the hardest point when you think I just don't know who to go for to for help, and I just kept plugging away, really. And I think sometimes asking somebody why you why they think it might not be working or if they've got any ideas is just the 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 most helpful part, really. So I think that was really difficult. And then secondly, there's always distractions. We all lead busy lives, and trying to fit a PhD or any research into your working life and your home life is is really challenging but it's really rewarding as well so I think it's about getting that balance really you know you can't all of a sudden take some research and dedicate your entire life to this research straight away from a standing start you have to find some way of fitting it in and at some points one bit takes over in your life than the other but it's it's just about perseverance I think and I found that sometimes really difficult but also really rewarding when either people at home or at work say no don't, don't worry keep going come on we're we're rooting for you here and I think that was really helpful actually talking to your peers or colleagues or, or family to to let them know what it's okay. like and what, what issues you're having really.
1: Fantastic so perseverance prioritization and peer support coming in there. You spoke a little bit about things that you have had more training in and that you've learned along the way could you tell us perhaps two or three um, specific things that you've learned from this experience and that you'll be able to take forwards in the future either in research or in your clinical uh, duties
2: yeah i think i think i've i've, I've learned self-reliance i've i've learned self-belief that actually you can you can become this research leader if you really want to and really try but also that teamwork's necessary and i i have a fantastic team around me from uh, claire simcock at great ormond street hospital radiology uh, but also Dr. Owen Arthur, who's my primary supervisor, and Professor Neil Sabir, who's my secondary supervisor, and all three of them have always been there for me to go and talk to, and ask questions, uh, and be very supportive and, and a real can-do attitude. And I think that's really good to see people say yes rather than no. I don't think that's possible. So I think that the ability to work as a team and also to be self-reliant at the same time is a really important point. Um, and and just my ability to talk about my research, whether that's in a journal paper, whether that's in a presentation, whether that's talking to my friends as we go for a walk or something, I think has been really important to be able to that communication has been has been a key factor that I've learned. And I've learned lots about statistics and a lot about research, a lot about experiment setup and things like that. But I think those are the two main key areas really, that sort of self-reliance teamwork, but also the um, the ability just to to communicate research has been something that I think I'll really take forward into my my next steps really
1: is there anything um on the flip side that you would do differently if you were going
2: to approach the
1: same thing in the future
2: probably probably at the time lots of things but I think (laughs) I think now looking back I learned almost more when it went wrong than when it went swimmingly and went smoothly And at the time, it was really frustrating when I spent six months trying to get some experiment to work or trying to recruit or something like that. But actually, just to keep going and keep persevering was really helpful. And I think out of that adversity comes some real new ideas and a real new way of you you working. So I don't know that I would do anything differently. Maybe I would speak to, maybe I'd have the confidence to speak to people who I see as experts in fields earlier and not feel that I need to become that expert before I can speak. I think that's probably important. And also that there are no daft questions. You know, you constantly feel that you haven't read enough or you haven't done enough or you haven't, uh, you're not senior enough. But actually, those simple questions are often the ones that people forget. But when you speak to the experts are really helpful at talking to. So I think I think that's probably a good thing to say is just to speak to them earlier and to, and to just rate those silly questions that you think must be so simple. And yet they're not.
1: Uh, very wise words there. And what advice, other than that, would you have for anyone else embarking on any sort of research? Say they're right at the start of their journey; they they have an interesting research. Maybe they've applied for some funding, um, but they're not really sure where to go from from there.
2: I was in research for about ten years before I started on my own PhD, uh, and I can still remember the day when I when I first i'd really like to get involved in this and i just went and asked someone can i can i help out with your audit can i help out with your research and the delight on their faces that actually somebody else was taking your interest was really was really great and i think that's my key thing is really just to get involved if you're interested just go up to someone who you know is doing some research and say look can i can i help can i sit in
1: Finally, is there any resources that you would suggest that anyone goes to to have a look at um, either before starting research or that they might want to refer to during their
2: research? The National Institute of Health Research, who fund me, obviously uh, is a fantastic uh, resource, both in funding, but also on websites. But it's uh, often quite overwhelming. But I think often that you have your own hospital library. We're very lucky here at Great Ormond Street. We have the ICH library and the librarians there are very, very helpful and um, there's the research design service that is also run by the National Institute of Health Research they're always very helpful there's lots of help online also my own society I um, I rang them up at the beginning of my PhD and said look I'm, I'm starting this PhD is there any way I could become involved in research in my own radiography society and then within a month I was on the research group forums and I was on the research committee and they were just wanting to en- engage with you so I think going to your own college or society, your own library within your hospital. And um, equally, anyone in your department who you think is also interested in research or completing research, those are the people to go to. And then, of course, there's the big websites, like I said, about the NIHR or or RDS, if you want more details. But I think those are the, the resources I would suggest, definitely
1: fantastic I think that's really helpful especially when you've got into those research forums and you know you've got all those contacts there um yeah I can imagine that's when you feel like yes I'm in the zone (laughs)
2: definitely definitely.
1: (laughs) brilliant so thank you so much for giving us your insight there Ian um I'm just going to ask um, Polly now to um, come back to us and um, talk about her experience um, in research, which I know is is quite a lot. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us, Polly. That's all right. Thank you ever so much for having me. So um, kicking off at, right at the start, um, could you tell us a bit about your research question um, uh, that you undertook for your PhD?
3: Yeah, so I'm a nurse by background. Um, I've spent uh, 24 years looking after children with rheumatic conditions. Um, So one of those conditions is called juvenile matemositis, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, shortened to JDM. Um, And it's a very rare condition that affects children's muscles and causes skin rashes. Um, but it can be quite severe and it can make children um, become immobile. So they have difficulty scratching their own noses or, you know, kind of moving around. And so by the time we see them at Great Albemarle Street, they can be quite weak and quite poorly. And. Um, So I wanted to find out really how we can help support those children better um, and what more we could do to help with what we call their psychosocial needs. So their psychological and their social aspects of living with this condition. Um, And there wasn't any research out there at all. So uh, my study was um, to investigate really how, how best we could improve upon that. Fantastic.
1: That's, it sounds like such an important and worthwhile area as well as being very um, unresearched. So another key part to doing research, finding areas that haven't been looked at. So leading on from that, could you tell us um, which methodologies you used and why you chose to use them?
3: Yeah, so you just perfectly uh, hit the nail on the head, really. So there isn't any research out there looking at how children and young people feel about having JDM. And so that means that this the research that I needed to do needed to find out if there's a problem. I mean, as a senior nurse, I might feel that we're not doing enough to help uh, children and young people, but actually they might feel they're perfectly fine. Thank you very much. So um, my study was a, um, a a big study. It was in four different phases and it's, uh, it was called a mixed method sequential exploratory design And what that basically means is the first bit of the study, my phase one, was really qualitative. So it wanted to ask the children and young people by doing real in-depth interviews about what they feel how their JDM affects them and what they think and feel about it so that was um, I interviewed 15 children I used a methodology called phenomenology which basically says what is it like to have JDM so I can tell you what it's like to have curly hair and what a nightmare it is and how I have to wash it and look after it but I can't tell you what it's like to have JDM because I haven't got it so yeah. I wanted to know from them so um, I started off interviewing some children in depth and then from what I had found from that I wanted to find out if what they were telling me was the same for every else in the UK, or whether I had just found a, a special group of children that were telling me something different. So my next stage was quantitative. So that was sending out surveys from the things that I'd found in the first phase to all of the kids with JDM across the UK. So I started off really exploratory, and then I drilled it down and sent out some questionnaires. So I was asking them um, to fill in certain questions and collecting kind of numbers, you know, about how they felt about things. And then my third phase was to go to the uh, healthcare professionals and ask them what they provide across the UK. So what already is there out there. And then my last stage was a dissemination workshop where I brought it all back together and invited everybody to come find out what we'd found so far and then to talk about the future and what we can do to to improve things. That
1: sounds amazing. And thank you so much for explaining that in, in such clear terms, because I know that it You know, you've made it sound very easy there, but I'm sure it was a lot more complex. Um, What issues um, then did you sort of encounter during that research? Obviously, you had a lot of different phases um, to address.
3: I I suppose the thing with mixed methods, which is what this study was, is that people often think, think mixed methods is easy. So we'll we'll do a bit of asking people how they feel and we'll do a bit of collecting some data. But what that actually means is you end up with lots and lots and lots of data and very different data. And so actually... it's really hard to think about how you are going to do the data analysis, how you're going to tie it all together. Really, that kind of an interpretive bit that comes at the end that's so important because that's what it's all about. So um, for me, I wanted to have it really clear what what mixed method study I was doing. So there's different types of mixed methods. You could do your you could send out your surveys and do your interviews at the same time. So that's called a parallel convergence study when you're doing two different arms and then you bring them together and each arm is looked. at in its own way. So, what was really important for me was that um, my first phase determined what I did in my next bit. So yeah. one of the difficulties I had was I had a bit of pushback about why don't we send out this questionnaire or why don't we send out this questionnaire in the second bit. But what I really wanted was them to relate to what I had found to what the young people were telling me, if that makes sense, so that it was really, really important for the young people so that we could change practice from not what we were guessing or what we thought of, but what actually was being shown. So that was that was really quite um, complicated to kind of keep reinforcing that message and keep going back that's what they recommend if you do mixed methods you keep going back to your research question and keep kind of grounding yourself in what it is um and I suppose the other thing that I found really hard was that I'm not a numbers person and actually from doing this huge big study I realized that the quantitative bit was a lot harder for me to get my head around and understanding all the probabilities and the kind of you know what what was statistically significant and all of that was really really hard um, and so from now on, I think I'm going to be a qualitative researcher and I'm going to be someone who collects words rather than collects numbers. I think that's so useful to know
1: because not everyone is a numbers person and not everyone is a is a words person. And part of the experience of research is, is I guess, finding that out about yourself.
3: Yeah, definitely.
1: So... What did you do to kind of overcome those issues at the time? Um, um,
3: well, yeah, tricky. The, the odd uh, um, kind of sit and bang your head against a brick wall, really. Um, I mean, as Ian said, there's, there's some great training out there and I was very, very lucky that this this project was funded by the the NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research. So that um, afforded me some time to do some real training and real try and upskill my own knowledge and understanding of things. Um, talking to people around you, using everybody, I had a great statistician, so she was kind of there. She was making me do all the actual tests, as it were, but at least it was someone I could kind of go back to and check I was doing the right thing. And stick with it. Um, I I suppose that's the other the other piece of advice I'd give people is to enjoy it because that's that's what it's all about. And actually, those couple of years that you do something like this flies by, and then it finishes, and then you kind of wish you were back in it.
1: What was the most difficult part of undertaking
3: the research,
1: and what did you learn from that?
3: I've I've learned so much. I mean, it, it, there were definitely clear 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 times when it felt more difficult when when especially when there would be big deadlines and you would have a lot of things to prepare for so a couple of conferences up and coming or papers to write or you know that kind of thing sticking with it and and time management and um I mean self-compassion is another big thing as researchers um we're we're pretty good at getting our heads stuck into things and working nights and weekends and keep going but actually affording yourself some time you know time to talk to people around you and your peers um is really really important and See, so, yeah, I suppose I suppose those are my main things. I mean, I've I, I have learned from my own personal journey how much I love this research and the clear benefits that this brings to patients and families. And um, throughout my study, I was really, really lucky to have good PPIE, so patient and public involvement. So some real good patient advocates who who wanted to be part of my study and wanted to help and would help send things out and disseminate and be interviewed and talk to me. And they could see the benefit, hopefully, of 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 a really good research study that might change the course of the, the, the disease and their treatment in the future. So that was that was really good. Uh, thank you so much for mentioning that because we we actually
1: have done a whole mini-series within this series about PPIE, um, where we talk to varying clinicians and also young people about their experiences. So I think it would be um really great um resource for someone if they were interested in research to go to that and have a little listen. Is there anything
3: that you would do differently now looking back with what you know during your research? Um, it's always really hard isn't it with that kind of reflection when you look back at things like I said I found the quantitative stuff really difficult maybe I might not have done that my first bit of the study was phenomenology as I've said and I really really enjoyed that and I, I made some um, poems from the young people's interviews and I really that was really powerful for me and for the young people as well and I really enjoyed that side of it more so so maybe less of the quantitative uh, maybe more of the creative methodologies if you're interviewing children young people it's really important that your methods that you're using are, are, are appropriate for them so if you're doing an interview with a, a younger child for instance if you can add in an element of creative um of creative cl- collecting data so drawing or writing or playing with play-doh or puppets or h- however it is then i think that's That's more age appropriate for those young people in your data that you will be collecting. Your research will be richer. So I think being being really, really clear from the outset, taking your time. We all want to get stuck in and get going, get on with those interviews. But actually, if you plan them really well and really think about it from the outset, then I think you'll get better results at the end. Thank you. I think that's both really great points
1: there. Um, And I think that's where maybe your clinical experience can really come in as well. Mm -hmm. So finally, what advice would you give to anyone else embarking on similar um, research? Um, And again, they were at the start of their journey. They had a, a research question in mind, but they weren't really sure how to approach it.
3: Well, I, I spend a lot of my time supporting people who, who are exactly at that place. And my advice is always the same. Just do it. Just, you know, pl- pluck up that courage and go and investigate. The, the best questions are questions that have come out of clinical care. So it's a nurse or an allied health professional who's got an idea. They found something that we could do differently or they're questioning why we're doing something. We're doing it So speak to people around you. Look at all the resources that we've talked about. and. Um, and, and get stuck in because it's such an enjoyable thing to do as an individual but also to really make that evidence-based practice and to change future patient care you know all to come together to make that research hospital you know that is questioning that is challenging that is really making sure that we're delivering the best possible care we can to our patients and families. Uh, Because that's what it's all about at the end of the day isn't it
1: like we you know we always come down back to clinical care so I think you're completely correct in saying you know just remember that in the background and come back to it if you or ever struggling or in a bad
3: place. (laughs) A a, a lot of people say research is is bench to bedside, but I think it's bench to bedside, but back again to bench. And it keeps changing throughout. And it is that cycle that we need to think about. This transformational, translational research is the whole journey. It's the whole way through. Um, And finally, is there any specific
1: resources that you personally would recommend anyone to have a look at um, or, you know, maybe uh, think about looking at in the future?
3: I mean there's some really, really really great seminal textbooks out there. If if you wanted to do a mixed method Study. Um, there's many books on there, but um, one that is like the Bible is one by uh, Cresswell and Piano Clark. And there's been many editions of that. I think the most recent was 2018, but that's a real seminal text that will explain all the different types of mixed methods research and how to tie it all together. Um, as Ian's already said, look at all of the kind of funding websites. There's some great ones out there, obviously, the NIHR, and there's Wellcome and the MRC. And a lot of those have strands for not just medical professionals, but also for nurses and ahps and healthcare scientists pharmacists for everybody yeah research design service the rds have a look at the james lind alliance has your question already been done has it been answered you know or are they the opposite they're saying that we need to do some research in your area that's amazing if you if you find that and yeah talk to everybody and anyone around you anyone who's going to champion you can be your best friend keep, keep a notebook of all those people that you meet because you it will grow and grow and grow and you might need people at different stages. And good luck.
1: (laughs) Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Polly. And thank you, Ian, for your amazing insights today. I'm sure they've been both useful and very motivational for anyone that's going to research. So that's all we have for today. I hope you found it useful. And we hope to see you both again very soon.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. That's brilliant. Thanks,
0: Sarah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gosh Pods. If you want to listen to more brilliant educational podcasts from the team at the GLA, please search GOSH Learning Academy wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about the work of the GLA by heading to the GOSH website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and searching Learning Academy. We're also on social media. You'll find the links to our Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn in the episode description. We hope you enjoyed this episode and you join us again soon for another installment of GOSH Pods.